I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's good to have you listening in. When my dad died several years ago, I received the old wristwatch that he wore for years. It no longer keeps the time, and the band is too big for my wrist. But it's comforting to slide it over my hand and hold it against my skin. I am, as grief researcher Mary Frances O'Connor says, in the present and remembering the past, with all of the pain and sadness and bittersweetness of having known and loved the person. O'Connor runs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab at the University of Arizona, and she's an expert on what the brain does when we're grieving. She writes in her new book that when someone close to us dies, you are navigating your life despite the fact that they have been stolen from you, a premise that makes no sense to the brain and that is both confusing and upsetting. Mary Frances O'Connor's new book is titled The Grieving Brain, and she joins us this morning from Tucson, Arizona. Professor O'Connor, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's so nice to be here, Carrie. I want to talk about how the brain creates this map uh, of our loved ones and then keeps trying to situate our loved ones on that map, even after they're gone. And I also am curious about how scientists know that. But describe how the brain constructs this idea of the virtual map. So because our loved ones are so important to us, the brain devotes a lot of space to keeping track of where they are. So if I say to you, how would you uh, find your partner right now? you can probably tell me where they are or when you'll see them next. And all of that is encoded by the brain. So by knowing how to predict what our lived loved ones are doing and our sense of closeness to them, there is a way the brain actually tracks where they are. Um, the other example is sometimes you'll say, oh gosh, I wish I could picture you in your new apartment if someone, a good friend has moved. And that's because your brain really wants to understand where someone is that is very important to us. And so even if we haven't seen that person for a long time, a child who maybe has gone away to college or has moved overseas, the brain still has this ability to say, well, this is this is in general where they are and, and continues to kind of keep track of that. Is that how, is that right? That's how I that's kind right. of understood your description. Yes, that's right. Because it's so important when we bond with our one and only, whether that's a spouse or a child or even a best friend, the brain then takes on the effort to try and understand where they are where in the world and when we will see them again. And so one of the very challenging things about death is that it isn't that we can't find them. It isn't that there isn't that they are, you know, far away or we won't see them for a long time. It's that there is no map. And that is a very hard thing for the brain to understand. So I want to know how scientists like you and your colleagues figured this out. What were the experiments that were really important to understanding this? 
There are a variety of aspects of neuroscience that have been used to discover this uh, way of mapping our loved ones. One of the ways that we know is that the brain is very good at tracking locations. And so if you think about even an animal, they are tracking where they should go to forage for food. Well, if you think about it, once we became social mammals, then tracking our pups and our partner, uh, the animals doing those trackings became very important as well. And so, for example, Zoe Donaldson at the University of Colorado Boulder has discovered that there are specific neurons that fire when we're approaching the loved one. Uh, so they fire only for that. And as the bond grows, as the bond grows stronger, there are more and more neurons devoted specifically to firing when approaching uh, the, the mate. So it's examples like that that help us to sort of piece together, along with some human neuroimaging studies, uh, the importance of humans, uh, to humans of our loved ones, and how to keep track of them. I'm going to come back to the neuroimaging because that was really interesting, um, how you describe what you see and how you set up these experiments. But I want to come back to this idea that even, let's say logically, I experienced my father's death. I went to his funeral. Intellectually, I know that he's gone. And yet it sounds like my brain is slower to catch up on that realization, that that's part of what grief is, that my brain keeps trying to situate my dad somewhere. And slowly, slowly, that kind of fades away. Do I have that? That is right. And it's why I think of grieving as a learning process. But, you know, we learn things all the time. So on some level, it seems really odd that it takes so long to really learn that they're gone, that you don't just pick up your phone to text them and then remember that you can't do that anymore. And I think it's because the brain has the capacity to really maintain two streams of information at the same time. So just as you described, on the one hand, we have the memory of maybe watching the person decline physically. We may have the memory of getting the phone call, knowing that they died. Or even going to the memorial or funeral, we have memories of, you know, standing around in our black clothing with our friends and family. And, and those memories make it real. It means that we know that they have died on one level. But because at the same time, when we have an attachment bond, part of that is the belief that they are out there for us, that if they are not here, that what we should do is go find them. Then those two pieces of information, the memories on the one hand and the belief on the other, it takes a long time for the brain to reconcile those and really be able to predict that we're not going to see them on this earthly plane again. Yeah, it, it explains a lot. L let's say, Mary Frances, that I was in your lab with you, standing next to you, as you were, you know, seeing some of the results of the neuroimaging experiments that you've done. In mm. layman's language, can you tell me what I'd see if you were doing a, some work with some volunteers who were experiencing grief 
and they agreed to be imaged, what kinds of things would I see? What would you be looking for? Mm. So when we ask bereaved people to come into the lab, we ask them also to bring some photographs, some photographs of the person who's died. And in some studies, photographs of what we call the living loved one, you know, another person who they're very close to who's still alive. And we have pictures of strangers, something, someone they would not have known. And on the, when they're in the imaging, neuroimaging scanner, uh, we are able to project those photos of the loved one, uh, of the stranger. And so in that sort of sterile hospital-like environment, by looking at these photos, they are really often overcome with grief. And at the same time, we're able to see the firing patterns in their brain while they are experiencing that, giving us a very quantitative and concrete way to measure something as ephemeral as grief. Yeah, I mean, did the is it that the imaging tools developed and just became more precise and finer? Or is it that uh, researchers like yourself began to understand that there was more dimension to grief? You know, I think it's always a back and forth. The history of science is that we understand more about astronomy once there's a really strong telescope. And so understanding the brain and emotions like grief is a similar thing. Once we had a way to look into the black box of the brain, then people like myself who were interested in the why and the how of grief were able to use that tool to examine, you know, a universal experience that human beings have been dealing with throughout all of time in a new way. I mean, it, I use the word dimension, and and I we're going to talk about how scientists now understand grief beyond these kinds of stages that you know have mm. been written about by Elizabeth Kubler Ross. But is this is has this neuroimaging given you greater understanding that grief may? exist in in a brain chemistry kind of way, in a neuroscientific kind of way, and how that links up with the experience of it in the body. I guess I want to know more about the mind-body connection of this and how well you understand that. Mm. You know, the thing that I think neuroimaging has given us that we didn't have before in understanding grief was it really forced scientists to think about it in terms of what is really lost when we lose a loved one? What is mm -hmm. it? And so that really led us down the path of understanding. We have to understand what the bond is like in the brain. How does the brain encode the fact that this person is our one and only and not that other person? And what we discovered was that bond is very much encoded in the reward neurobiology of the brain. And so we began to see results that suggested that grief was related to reward neurobiology, which seemed strange at first. 
But as soon as you think about the idea that the brain is trying to predict when we will next see this person, which is a very rewarding experience, Mm -hmm. which all, you know, the dopamine and oxytocin is trying to motivate us to seek out that loved one again, then maybe it makes a little more sense that we have to develop a new prediction that we're not going to see them again. And some of what we see in grief is then related to this reward neurobiology. But of course, as you say, that dopamine and oxytocin affects the rest of the body as well. It isn't only present in the brain. Yeah. I mean, as I was reading your book, I was also reading a book about heartbreak and all of the Mm -hmm. physical manifestations. Um, Florence Williams' new book, Uh, And all the physical manifestations that the body goes through when the heart, uh, you know, and the brain have experienced uh, the loss, not through death, but through the end of a relationship. And what was really extraordinary about that is how connected so many other parts of our physical systems are to this experience of heartbreak. And it made me wonder whether you are learning that your circulatory system, your digestive system, you know, so many other parts of the body are going to be afflicted by this experience of grief. What do you know about it? Not only is our physical body uh, really changed when we lose this regulator in our life, right? When we lose this other person that helps us to regulate our sleep and our eating patterns, but also things like our heart rate. It is also the fact that we can see that in the brain as well. So not many neuroimagers use peripheral physiology or Uh, measures from the body at the same time as they measure reactions in the brain. But I have a couple of studies that look at cardiovascular reactivity and also inflammation from the immune system in the body. And what's interesting is we see an association between increased inflammation, say after the death of a loved one, Mm -hmm. and particular activation in emotion regulation parts of the brain. So it's interesting to think about the fact that the brain is reacting to this external event, the memories like you were describing of, of, you know, your father's watch, but your brain is also reacting to the internal stress experience that you're having when you lose a loved one. And the brain sort of sits as this command center that is integrating the information from both the outside world and the inside world. So how much have you come to understand about the different kinds of grief that people experience and the fact that, you know, I want to I get to personality traits and how that might uh, affect or influence the way people experience grief. Is there a greater mm-hmm. understanding that the experience of grief is not essentially a step through five different stages and that some people may have an experience of grief physically and emotionally and intellectually that looks quite different from someone else's. That doesn't mean the loss is any less meaningful, but that that is the way this person for a lot of different reasons is experiencing grief. 
Okay, long question. That's To right. come back to ask you, how well you understand why that happens? Yeah. So I think it came as a little bit of a surprise when George Bonanno first published some of the work on the trajectories of grieving. So I'm going to make a distinction here between grief, which is just the natural human reaction to loss, that sort of wave that overcomes you with its ferocity, wishing things were back the way they had been. But grieving is the change over time. And so if we measure uh, someone's experience of grief a few months after the death, six months after the death, 18 months after the death, we can then see a pattern of what their reaction to that death has been over time. And we think of this as grieving. One of the most surprising findings, as I say, by George Bonanno, was that the vast majority of us are actually quite resilient. So although grief is an experience of suffering, in terms of grieving, we do find a way to keep, you know, functioning in our world. We keep getting dinner on the table and, you know, eventually we get back out to work and we're wearing matching shoes. Um, as difficult as it is in each of those moments, we are resilient across a trajectory of grieving. However, there are a small number of people, maybe one in 10 bereaved people, or even less, who really don't seem able to adapt or to really restore a meaningful life. They describe things like feeling completely disconnected from those around them, like they're suddenly on an alien planet. Or they describe just going through the motions. They're doing things, but they don't really feel them as they do them. A woman once said to me, who had what we call prolonged grief disorder, why would I give my children bar mitzvahs if their grandmother isn't there to see it? And so you can see that this sort of not able to move uh, through this this trajectory means that it's affecting the whole family. It's not even just affecting her. But what we know is it isn't that there are discrete stages you go through, just as you were describing. So people do experience anger and depression and, and, and acceptance, but it isn't that you experience all of that at one time and then you move on to some other feeling but rather that over time, acceptance tends to increase, even if it's not ever complete, and that yearning tends to decrease, again, even though that's not ever complete either. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to uh, my conversation with Mary Frances O'Connor. She runs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab at the University of Arizona, and her new book is titled The Grieving Brain, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss. So let me come back to what I was asking about, whether there's an intersection between, you know, a, a cluster of personality traits and the people that you see uh, tend to be more resilient in grief. Again, acknowledging what you said, that prolonged grief, highly complicated grief is fairly rare. But I wonder if there's some, you know, some overlap between who we are and how we might experience grief. There are a few predictors that we can use that we've discovered through research. 
But keep in mind always that these are sort of risk factors. It doesn't mean that if a person has had this experience that they will necessarily develop something like complicated grief disorder. But some of those include, uh, for example, if someone has difficulty with other aspects of attachment in their life, let's say they uh, had a lot of separation anxiety as a child, it's possible that this will uh, be a more likely predictor of having difficulty with grief. Um, another thing that we look at is, this is sort of a, a beneficial factor, if people have an understanding of life that includes death, and that can be a religious view, but that can be sort of a philosophical view or even a view sort of of agriculture as life as a cycle, um, then we find that those people are better able to incorporate a specific death into their understanding of, of the world. Um, so those are just two small indications. But more importantly to me is really that each person's individual grief experience is going to be so different. So even within the same person, you might have a reaction to the death of uh, a parent, and that takes a pretty resilient trajectory. And then that same person could have the reaction to the death of a spouse that ends up in prolonged grief disorder, because each relationship is so different. And because of that, each experience of grief is so different. Okay, that's interesting. That that leads to a couple other questions I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned that grieving is a learning process. I wonder if you have seen, you know, people who have increased exposure to bereavement in some ways learn how to manage it, or is it, as, as you've just noted, you know, each death in your circle is going to affect you differently, and you, it isn't like you get the hang of grieving. Do you, do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And I think there's another factor that has to be included to answer that question. And that is that if we have a grief, if, if we experience the death of a loved one and, and we have a grief reaction and we have sort of the, the time and space and in some cases even sort of the financial security to process what has happened, to understand how that affects our life going forward, um, then we tend to be pretty resilient. But keep in mind that um, if we don't have those things, if we don't have the resources uh, to really cope with the grief while it is happening, while our brain is still learning uh, this new world we have to walk around in, and then we have another loss, that that makes it much more difficult to do this processing. And so one of the things we know, for example, is that bereavement is a health disparity. So this has always been true, but we've really seen this in the pandemic where uh, communities that are under-resourced already, so our minority communities, um, they have also experienced more deaths than, than others. And so we see, for example, in the work of Tene Lewis from Emory University, that women in middle age who are Black, show greater losses, multiple losses. And when they do, we actually can see this in, their, uh, in the thickness of their arteries. Wow. And so 
we know that there are interactions between having enough resources to really cope with the grief that we're experiencing and then how that will affect us longer term. One of the things that we witnessed in the pandemic early on was that people were losing loved ones and being unable to be at their sides, be in the hospital with them because of the threat of uh, contagion. What do you know, what do researchers know, or maybe this is developing out of this pandemic, about how one experiences bereavement if one has not had some kind of witness experience of that loss or is deeply traumatized by the inability to have, you know, in some ways been able to say goodbye or to be there as that person passed. This has been such an unusual experience. If you think through, you know, across cultures and through history, when our loved ones are dying, we're there with them. And although there was a very good reason, just as you describe, that because of the communicability of this virus, uh, it meant that it was important to uh, have separated people who had COVID it also really disrupted so many of the normal processes that human beings use to cope with grief and loss. And so when I think about what pandemic grief will mean, and I'm doing some research on this now, for me, it isn't just, you know, what will be the number of people or uh, what will grief feel like, but really why might grief be different during the pandemic? So if you think about what I was describing, that there are these sort of two streams of information the brain is trying to reconcile, that they are always going to be there for us. We're always going to be there for them, that belief. And Mm -hmm. then those memories that we typically have of being at the bedside or of being at a funeral with others who love us. Um, Right now, the memory side is really affected in a very different way. You know, I work with... um, participants in the current research studies who tell me stories like um, the 70-year-old woman who dropped off her husband at the ER. He was having a little trouble breathing. He had COVID. And, you know, in the next couple of days, they were telling her they were going to take him off a respirator and he passed away. And she hadn't been able to see any of that. It just didn't seem real that he could possibly have died. Or even non-COVID deaths that are still subject to this situation. A man who told me that his wife's um, biopsy for endometrial cancer kept getting put off and put off and, and eventually she died. And knowing that there wasn't something that we could do is something that humans really ruminate about after a loss in typical situations, but now, especially under this circumstance, I think the sort of should have, would have, could have, if only I Mm. could have, if only the doctor would have, if we should have, you know, done this or that. And I think possibly it's that kind of thinking that sort of runs through your head over and over again, which is natural and normal, uh, but may persist in this unusual circumstance we're going through. What do you think about the impact of a of a pandemic where we are we're kind of surrounded by the reality of people 
dying and and the reality of a lot of people in bereavement. I've been curious about whether people experienced the loss of their own loved one and their grief differently because their neighbor had a similar experience in real time. Their, you know, a, a relative is going through this as well. I wondered about this because I've had conversations with friends who have lost somebody in their family circle. And while the pain is acute, there is something about this experience of knowing that other people went through it that seems to be somewhat uh, supporting, I guess. They don't feel as alone. What, um, what, what's coming out on that for you? You know, I think this really will vary from person to person. And I think that you're right. The hope for me is that because bereavement is such a common experience right now, I think that it may lead to greater funding for research, but also greater funding for um, uh, supporting children in the schools who have experienced the death of a, of a caregiver or even a sibling. I think it may lead us to connect with each other because the barrier is just a little bit lower if we think others may understand. And I have to say, you know, although we are experiencing it on such a wide scale right now, this was something that definitely happened in the gay community during the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. that there was a way in which, you know, the AIDS quilt came about, which is still the largest memorial project for bereavement ever, um, that really helped people to connect with each other. And when they connect with each other, they try to work out together what is meaningful, what can be made out of this terrible experience that we've been through. And that can often lead to real social changes. It's always good news to know that there will be more money coming for scientific research, right? Even if it has to happen because of a a global pandemic. I, I guess I wonder if hope. you, right. I guess I wonder if you, from your vantage point and your knowledge and research experience, if you kind of knew what was coming, not, not the way the virus would spread, but more, wow, this is going to be a world saturated in grief and, it is an unusual thing for a researcher like yourself to in, uh, observe and endure an experience like that. What did you see coming? That's a really interesting question. And I did a lot of work um, early on knowing that, that this was coming and that, of course, our healthcare workers were very overwhelmed with grief right from the beginning. I think something that really struck me early on because of having worked in this field um, is that I had a feeling that a lot of resilience would come out of it. And so where a lot of people were very fearful about what this wave of bereavement was going to do to us Mm -hmm. as a society, as a world, as a species – we have survived other pandemics and other situations of mass tragedy. And in the best scenarios from those experiences, 
cultures have shifted in ways where things that were meaningful, you know, were more salient. So I think as we see other impacts of the pandemic, like the great resignation, uh, Mm -hmm. for example, this idea that maybe the job I'm doing isn't really worth what I'm being paid or isn't worth the fact that no one's home to take care of my child. I think there is a way that bereavement can kind of cut through and help us to realize what is important, what is meaningful, what is valuable. Um, So my hope, and granted I am an optimistic person, my hope was that with this large number of, of deaths that we would be able to connect with each other if we were willing to reach out and that we would use this opportunity to think about what is important socially to us to strengthen the friendships and relationships that uh, we have, you know, had to rely on during the pandemic and then take that with us into the future How do you carry the absence of an individual person that you have lost? You understand how they can be incorporated into your everyday life in the future, how you might speak with them in your head or ask for advice or even just sort of try to be the best daughter you can be after your mother has died, a good person in the world. So it is my hope that this was how uh, we will react to the just enormous amount of pandemic grief that happening that's happening. Yeah. yeah, you know the other thing that occurs to me as I listen to what you're saying is you know, even if you did not lose someone in your immediate family circle, I get the sense that some of the ways we are behaving as this pandemic seems to wane indicates some kind of a collective bereavement. You know, I've wondered if that's some of what, as you've noted, what the great resignation is about, or the way people are reprioritizing. If you ask them, hey, uh, Mary Frances O'Connor wants to know if you are actually in grief, I don't know that they would say, many people would say that they are, they they feel like they're experiencing grief. But something has happened, and things have changed. And I've wondered if there is an element of this kind of collective bereavement that we're going through. What what do you think? I think that is entirely possible. And, you know, there are many aspects to grief. The other way I've thought about this is the amount of sort of short-temperedness we see currently, (laughs) whether that's on airplanes or, you know, in the street, um, Anger is something that comes along with grief as well. When we are frustrated by having to change all the ways that our habits and things should work, whether that's because we've lost someone close to us or whether we've lost a job or just our connection to, you know, friend groups, not being able to go to the gym, whatever it is it has this emotional impact on us. And one of those can be anger and another, as you say, can really be focusing in on what's meaningful. So the thing is, I think we have a choice, both as individuals and as a collective, of how we respond to really understanding that anything can be taken away from us. 
I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Mary Frances O'Connor. She runs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And her new book is titled The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. While we've talked about learning, I've been thinking about this interview that I did recently with Ivan Maisel. Um, he is the fa- he's a sports writer and the father of a college-aged son who died by suicide while this young man was away at school. And Ivan Maisel said that he came to terms with the permanence of his grief. He wasn't going to get over it. He, he began to understand that. And then he realized something else. And I want you to listen to what he realized. The permanence of it, something my mother said to me in the, a few weeks after Max disappeared, that it, it just is. And, you, you know, she just said it just is. And that helped me. And, and the, there was a poet, Edward Hirsch, who wrote a lovely poem about his son, Gabriel, who died. And he had the image of grief as a bag of cement you carry up a hill that never ends, which is a, a, a haunting image, certainly, but it was one that I could appreciate just in the sense that it made me understand you're not going to get rid of this, so you've got to figure out how to live with it. And once I did that and I began to think about, you know, as I was thinking and thinking about grief and and the amount of pain that I was in, it just dawned on me that the amount of pain I was in was commensurate to the amount of love I have for Max. It's Ivan Maisel. By the way, um, you can hear the whole interview with uh, Mr. Maisel on my podcast Mary Frances, what do you hear in how Ivan is reckoning with the permanence of this grief and then the way he starts to think about grief as love? What, what are you, what's mm. happening there? That is such a beautiful and heartfelt description that he gives. I think this is the real fear that if people think getting through grief means that they won't have that feeling anymore, they're probably going to be disappointed and they're probably going to think there's something wrong with them. But it is very commonly a part of human nature that if we have experienced the death of someone with whom we had a loving relationship, that we will carry that. And it will, I mean, even literally, because that relationship, that bond has changed our brain, that we perceive the world going forward with that same brain and we will never perceive it the same way again. And I think the thing that really, (laughs) the way I sometimes try to describe this, which sounds a little odd, is I will say to people, when did you get over your wedding day? (laughs) Which is, of course, not a question that makes sense. (laughs) But the reason that it is similar is that It is also an event that just changes us profoundly. No matter Mm -hmm. what happens, we have been a married person. That we see the world as having currently or at one time faced the world with someone else. And so it just changes the way we understand everything. 
and bereavement is similar. Once you've walked through that door of experiencing the death of someone very close, it is a part of everything then after that. I mean, I I think what you're, that example of when did you get over your wedding day speaks to (laughs) this idea that seemed to settle into our, our understanding of grief shaped by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. And I, I, part of what happened, I guess, out of that is, well, you've moved through the stages of grief and now you ought to be over it. And mm-hmm. you say that while she gave us valuable insight into grief, her model was what you called damaging, your word. Why is that? I think that the way it has been used as a prescription for how to get, quote, through grief can be problematic for people. I think if we think of acceptance, even in that language that he was using, as acceptance being, I now have this weight that I have to carry and I accept that I have to carry it and that it will influence what I do going forward. But also that that will influence me for better and for worse. So I'm much more empathetic and understanding now for people who have a death because of losing my own mother, losing my own father. I can listen differently because I have walked that walk. And similarly, you know, I'm a really happy person. And sometimes people say, I don't understand how you can study death and loss. (laughs) But for me, it really is. You know, these issues we're having today, a student doesn't get a good grade, or we can't connect the microphone for a podcast. (laughs) There's sort of this feeling, which is like, well, you know, this isn't a life or death situation. And it gives me a kind of perspective I just could not have had before. It doesn't mean I would have chosen this path to experience grief. But given that I have accepted, it comes along with me. There's lots of ways for me to incorporate that in how I understand the world. So I was thinking, you know, you get to a a certain age and you're almost inevitably going to experience the grief of losing loved ones. This is part of living. But you dealt with this at a pretty young age. I, I think you've alluded to your mother's death. What did your mother's illness revealed to you about, I guess, about grief and your own experience of it? It's funny. When my mom was uh, in the final year of her life, uh, I went to see a counselor. And I remember saying to her, you know, my mom is dying. I've known she was going to die for about 13 years. What is there really to say about it? And then it turns out, you know, I've spent... 20 years since then writing about grief. So apparently there's a lot to say. (laughs) I think I discovered by going through that experience that I could sort of, quote, go there with people, that I was not afraid to have people cry uncontrollably, that I wasn't afraid for them to face, you know, some of the existential issues that coming face to face with mortality brings up. And it meant that by interviewing people 
And by really digging into the experiences they were having, I was able to do research that maybe wasn't commonly done and enabled me to really get into another layer of it. In that sense, it has been, it has changed, of course, my career and my life. But I think at its most basic, I really saw the grief that my mother was experiencing. So I was 13 when she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, and she was not expected to live through the year. And I saw and even more felt all the grief that she was experiencing that she should not, you know, be 50 years old and facing this. And my goal has always been to try and understand her and now to understand other people as she experienced life and really to find the best ways to help them, to support them, to even just be with them and witness their experience. So you, you've said that you saw your mother's grief, that her life was going to be cut short, not as short as, as you've said initially that she was diagnosed with. Did she see mm-hmm. your grief? Do you think she, how well do you think she understood what that, what this was going to mean for you? That's such an interesting question. She definitely did. And I think knowing that her daughters were going to, you know, be without a mother, I think she thought also a lot about her own mother who was still alive. And knowing that her own mother was going to lose a child, mm-hmm. I think those things incorporated into her own grief, um, into her not knowing how to manage day-to-day life sometimes. Uh, And at the same time, she had such confidence in my sister and I. She really gave us the belief that we could do anything we set our mind to. And in some ways, I think this was her sort of antidote, that even when she wasn't there with us, that we would retain that, you know, utter confidence she had in us. So how much do you understand about how you and your sister have experienced the loss of your mother and what that, what that says about the way you've each grieved in different ways? Boy, (laughs) it's a, that's a big question. I think, you know, it affects us differently at our different ages, right? So Again, I think if people think, well, I will be over this eventually, they may forget that, you know, for example, my sister is engaged right now, and neither of my parents will be there on her wedding day. That's not something we could really have comprehended when we were, you know, in our early 20s when when my mom passed away. And we will have grief on that day that will be just as strong as our grief has ever been, but it's not because we didn't do something earlier. We didn't correctly process our grief, but rather because that grief will just be a natural response to having lost her. And so I I think it has influenced our lives in so many ways that it isn't even possible to say the ways in which it has influenced them. It has certainly brought us closer together for which I'm very grateful. So has therapy 
as your understanding from a scientific point of view, with again these imaging tools that you employ, as your understanding about grief has changed, I wonder if the therapy has changed, particularly for people who are so bereaved that they're emotionally and mentally immersed in the past. You know, this highly uh, complicated and prolonged grief. What does Mm -hmm. therapy do for that these days? Well, I have the advantage of not just being trained as a neuroscientist, but as a clinical psychologist as well. So I feel comfortable wading into this world. And one of the things that is clear is that depression and prolonged grief disorder are different things. Now, you can have comorbid, you can have them both, just like you could have depression and anxiety. But we know now that we can have targeted psychotherapy for prolonged grief disorder. So a number of randomized clinical trials done on prolonged grief disorder treatment uh, from Columbia University and the work of Kathy Shear has demonstrated that this very specific type of treatment really is impactful and can help people who have, you know, experience prolonged grief disorder for 10 years, they can still have the experience after therapy of really having restored a meaningful life or, or really continuing to um, improve in the way they function day to day. So it isn't the same as treating depression. In fact, we know that antidepressant treatments, while they are helpful for depression symptoms, and people who are grieving can have depression symptoms. Antidepressants don't actually um, uh, help with yearning and the emotional pain we think of as central in prolonged grief disorder. So I think increased research will really help us to target what are these psychotherapy mechanisms so that we can even more effectively um, provide these to to the people who need them, and then hopefully eventually do enough training of psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers and chaplains so that many people know how to provide this type of targeted treatment. Oh, that's really hopeful. I wonder if you have clients or people who have volunteered for your studies who believe that if they let go of the grief, you know, the very painful, immersive grief, that they that it somehow says something about what that person meant to them in their world. And if they let it go, it means that they didn't love them the way they know they did. I think this is a very frequent experience. Uh, and a very, very difficult one for people. And I've been thinking about this lately, and so I don't know if this will make sense to you, but I often think of, so for example, several people have told me that they aren't able to listen to music since the death of their loved one. Uh, A woman who told me it seemed unfair to be able to enjoy music when her mother was no longer here no longer able to enjoy music. And I think of this as sort of a a protest against the fact that she is gone. And acceptance 
really is around understanding the reality is just that she is gone. And unfortunately, this sort of protest of, I will hold this pain because it makes my relationship with this person meaningful. You know, living a life with a lot of pain doesn't actually change the reality that the person is gone. And so it's a complicated piece to work through. And this can be something very importantly addressed in therapy. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that somehow prolonged suffering has added meaning to that person's life. And that if you're not continuing to suffer, then somehow you've diminished who that person was. I would imagine that's very difficult to work around. That is a very difficult um, experience. And because it is held so closely for people, even if people who feel that way are listening to this, they probably will feel like I just don't understand. And, and so, you know, that takes some time to work out. Um, I have known people who have found a way, uh, 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 another person that I know who experienced, um, his son's death by suicide said, you know, there's no way through it. There's only a way around it. Um, and so working out what that way around it will be for this person has to come from the inside, but it can be helped by people who have worked with this problem a lot in the past. So um, one last question for you that I, I've been curious about whether you pair a lot of the scientific reading that you do with the literature, you know, both fiction and nonfiction of grief and what you, what you get from, you know, creative nonfiction or fiction. Mm. It is almost impossible to watch a television show or a movie or read a book where some aspect of one of the characters isn't motivated by the death of someone that they were close to. If you start to see the world this way, you recognize how much of art is an expression of grief in one way or another. And some of our most treasured art forms and uh, are, are motivated from this. You know, I think of the Taj Mahal. Um, but what it has taught me is that there are very metaphorical ways that people put things, very poetic ways. Um, I find this can be helpful for individuals to have another way to express what they're experiencing. But it also has taught me to really listen deeply to those metaphors that they may be more reflective of what the brain is doing than we might give credit. So it was Joan Didion's writing in The Year of Magical Thinking about how she couldn't give up her husband's shoes because he might need them again that really set me off thinking that the brain might really be using two sources of information at the same time. So in some ways, I think my listening closely to what 
bereaved people are saying, both in my clinical interviews, but in forms of art as well, has really shaped what I understand, even in a neuroscientific way. Oh my gosh, that's such a great answer to that question. (laughs) Um, Mary Frances, thank you so much. Wonderful to have you on the conversation today. Thank you so much for bringing this conversation to people. It's a tough topic to tackle, but it really is in talking about it that we remember it isn't just each of us has grief, but rather there is grief and we are all a part of that. Mary Frances O'Connor runs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab at the University of Arizona, and her new book is titled The Grieving Brain, 